The scripture reading for this evening is found in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 24, beginning to read at verse 36 through the end, verse 53. What happened before this is that the disciples, they met together and they were surprised by the men of Emmaus who had seen the Lord and then they together rejoiced and said, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared unto Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in the breaking of bread. And now it comes, as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit has not flesh and bones as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have you here any meat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of a honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. The text for the sermon this evening is found in the portion that we have read from Luke 24, verses 50 and 51. There we read, And he led them out 
as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Beloved congregation, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ are three fundamental doctrines. They are the wellsprings of hope and strength and consolation for God's people. By his death, Christ made a perfect atonement for sin, thereby reconciling God and man. By his resurrection, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power. His Father setting the seal of approval upon the work completed. And as we shall see this evening, Christ's ascension presents to the eye of faith an ever-living mediator at the right hand of the Father. A glorious high priest over the house of God and an all-prevailing intercessor able to save to the uttermost all those who come unto God by or through him. And then also yet an omnipotent king who rules with sovereign sway over all things in heaven and on earth. Christ's ascension into heaven and his session at the right hand of God represent the second and the third stages of his exaltation. The first one being the resurrection. That Christ would not only rise from the grave but also go up into heaven has been clearly foretold both in the Old Testament and the New. In Psalm 47 verse 5 we read, God is gone up with a shout, we have just sung it, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. And then there's also Psalm 68 verse 18 which says, Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. The Savior himself also foretold his own ascension several ways, several times. For instance, he said, I go to the Father. He said that to his disciples in John 14, verse 28. Again, I go my, my way to him who sent me. He said that in John 16, verse 5. Besides these prophecies and predictions spanning at least a thousand years, there are also several references to the actual event of the ascension. In addition to our text, we have Mark 16, verse 19, Acts 
1 verses 9 through 11, Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.16, Hebrews 9.24, and many more passages which refer to the historical fact of Christ's ascension. Luke is the only Bible writer who tells us from where Jesus went up into heaven. It was on the southeast side of Jerusalem and separated from it by the valley of the brook Kidron. There is a a mountain ridge there running north and south. Its summit is about half a mile from the wall of the holy city. For thousands of years, it has been famous for its olive trees. And from the days of Samuel to the present time, it has been called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives. Over this mount, David fled, weeping as he left the city in the rebellion of Absalom. At its base, on the west, lay the famous Garden of Gethsemane. On its eastern slope was the little village of Bethany, so often favored with the presence of the Savior when he went to look at his friends, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Mount Olivet has witnessed many of the miracles, and it looked upon there by the Lord. From its western slope, he had Jerusalem, he saw Jerusalem, and he wept over it. At its foot, he had been sorrowful and very heavy, his sweat becoming like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Mount Olivet witnessed his human weakness and his dreadful sufferings. But now, things had changed radically. Now he was about to go to heaven. And that place, Mount Olivet, became witness to his great triumph and amazing glory. Here he had fought with the powers of darkness. And here he would now make a show of them openly. He testified to the fact that he had triumphed over Satan. And therefore from this familiar spot, Christ went up to heaven, having led his disciples out as far as to Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them, his disciples. And while he blessed them, he was parted from them, we are told here, and carried up into heaven. It is very important to realize who it was that ascended into heaven. Well, you say it was Jesus Christ. Yes, but he was the God-man. Christ in his human nature went up to heaven. He left 
one place, the earth, and he goes to another place, heaven, according to his human nature. I say this because we have to be careful that we understand who Jesus was and is. He's both God and man. And we cannot say that he went up to heaven as God in his divine nature. Because that nature of Christ fills heaven and earth. And it is not confined to any one place. It pervades infinity. He is omnipresent, being God. When Christ was walking here on earth, he spoke of the Son of Man as being then in heaven. He was here on earth, but he was already walking in heaven. John 3, verse 13. At all times, you see, this was true of his divine nature. And therefore, it was Christ here who went up to heaven in his human nature. In a human body. In a human soul. Contrary to Martin Luther, Christ's exaltation did not deify his humanity. Luther said that at his ascension, he became, not that he was not God, but he, his whole being was changed into a divine nature, which could be present everywhere. Now, you may wonder why that was so bad that he said that. Well, the implications, they were important. John Calvin and others disagreed with him. If he had gone up in his divine nature, and if Luther would have been correct, then Jesus would have been everywhere. But he went to heaven where he was in a certain place. And according to his human nature, he could not be everywhere present. According to his divine nature, certainly. But it was in that glorified human nature that he represents God's people. It is in our nature that he is exalted above the highest heavens. And this is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, Paul says, and received up into glory, 1 Timothy 3.16. It is no great mystery that the Son of God should be exalted to the throne on high. It is just one step from the bosom of the Father to his right hand. But that someone in our nature should be exalted to that seat of power and glory, that the mediator between God and man should be the man, Christ Jesus, that is indeed a great mystery. That the hands which once were nailed to the cross should now hold the scepter and that the feet which once walked the dusty roads of Palestine and which were washed with a sinful woman's tears and kissed in penitential grief 
and love with polluted lips that these very feet should now have all things put under them both in heaven and on earth. That is the great wonder. And that is why also our catechism says we have our flesh in heaven. When Jesus is there, he's there in a certain place. But how could that be? I mean, how could human nature, which had sinned against God in paradise, be received up into heaven? Had not God cast man out of his presence, driving him out of the Garden of Eden? Is it possible for man to approach unto a holy and righteous God? Must not lawbreakers, and that's what all of us are, be punished with everlasting perdition in hell? How could a human being, a fallen son or daughter of Adam, expect to ever to get into the presence of God again and go to heaven? There was a sentence of God pronounced upon all sinners. But, and that is the gospel, God has sent us his son. And this son has adopted our nature. And in that nature, he has suffered and died for our sins. In that nature, he also rose from the grave. And now we see him ascending up into heaven in that human nature. Jesus enters heaven's glories as our representative, as our forerunner, thus proving to us that it is possible for men to enter into the presence of God. All who believe in Christ are by faith identified with him and therefore will someday be where he is now. His being there in our nature and in our flesh is a sure pledge of our own exaltation. That is what I'm trying to say. Let us also look at the manner in which Christ went to heaven. He ascended not figuratively, but literally. Not only spiritually, but physically not invisibly, but visibly. I say that because many theologians there say, today say that it was only a spiritual event, not a literal, physical thing. And there are theologians even of recently conservative uh, makeup. They, they are departing from the truth of scripture and they're, they're saying that it is really something that happened, yes, but it is only figuratively, not really. And I say some theologians from churches that we have always regarded to be orthodox. But what I'm saying now is that it was something that, that 
people actually saw, witnessed, the disciples, they saw him ascend into heaven as clearly as they saw him on the cross or on the ship or at the seaside. Nor was he taken away suddenly in a flash. He was seen to leave the earth. He was seen, witnessed for some time after he left them. They gazed upon him. They stared at him. Their eyes following him as far as they could until a cloud took him out of their sight. His ascension into glory was a triumphant event for him. Forty-three days before he had ridden into Jerusalem seated on a donkey. But now things have changed tremendously. He now ascends triumphantly. And now he goes to the heavenly Canaan. Heavenly Jerusalem, I mean. He left the world speaking words of encouragement and benediction. It was while he blessed them that he parted from them. Now the last thing, therefore, that the disciples saw of their master was his hands spread out over them. The last activity in which they saw him engaged was that of blessing them. Yet this time it is different. The blessing he bestows upon them here is a high priestly blessing. In other words, it is a blessing based upon his now finished work. We read in the Old Testament that the high priest would first bring sacrifices and then he would come out of the sanctuary to the outer court where the people were waiting and there he would bless them. Think of the father of John the Baptist, Zacharias. Now to the people that was a sign that God had accepted the sacrifices for their sins and that therefore their sins were now forgiven. But here is the great high priest over the house of God who also had brought his perfect sacrifice for sin. And therefore now he can bless his people on the basis of that sacrifice. There's more to be said here because we we know that the Old Testament high priest said when blessing the people, and you know, you all know that that blessing, almost every minister will will leave, uh, close his service with these words, the Lord bless thee and keep thee, the Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee, the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Now, whether the Savior actually spoke these particular words, we cannot tell. But that the disciples understood the meaning of the blessing, we may be sure. Is it any wonder then that we read that they worshipped him? It says, 
they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. The last activity of Jesus on earth gives us a hint as to what Christ is doing now in heaven. As he entered heaven, while blessing his own, he's still engaged in that, in that same priestly work. For the apostle says, he ever lives to make intercession for us, and that includes blessings. Ephesians 1 tells us what kind of blessings God's people receive out of the sanctuary above. The Apostle Paul says there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, forgiveness, peace, joy, and comfort. What a sight that must have been for the disciples. They looked up into blessing hands, and those hands were pierced hands. I mean, they had earned these blessings for them, those nail-pierced pierced hands showed the sufferings of our Savior so that on the basis of those sufferings he could now bless his people. He had come down from heaven under a curse, the curse of sin which lay on his people he had taken upon himself. The Bible says he became a curse for us. Paul says that. And so he submitted to a cursed death, the death of the cross. He was forsaken, cast out as our substitute. He bore the, the full load of God's wrath. And he paid the price for our sin and guilt. And that is why he can now bless us. The disciples and believers today live under an open heaven. Do you realize that? If you are a believer, if you trust Christ, if he is your savior, you live under an open heaven. He is a compassionate savior. He's a merciful Savior. Those hands of their master, I'm talking about other disciples here, they, they were to show them the meaning of Christ's work. They were to these disciples a pledge that he would never forget them. They knew that he had graven them upon the palms of his hands. But what is more, they knew that as their high priest, he carried all their names in his heart. Just as the Old Testament high priest had the names of the 12 tribes 
on his on the breastplate. He had Jesus had them written on his heart. And so it is congregation with the names of his beloved disciples. They were as close to them as could possibly be on or in his heart. And that is where he has all his people, all their names are there. And now with all those names going on him and in him, he goes into the sanctuary in heaven. And that was a tremendous comfort for the disciples. They were in need of such comfort, for they were facing diff very difficult times, times of persecution, times of affliction, and all for the sake of Christ. But now they could return to Jerusalem confident that their master would remember them and protect them against all their enemies. Yes, congregation, Jesus would not only remember them and, and pray for them, but he would also help them. He would assist them. We read that in the book of Acts, we are told about the labors of the apostles, but really the better translation would have been and would be that these were the acts of Christ through his apostles. He entered heaven. And what happened next? Or what happened as soon as he, he got there? Well, he received a crown. Ascension day meant for Christ a coronation day. And one of those meanings was that with that coronation, he was given all power in heaven and on earth. And he still has that power today. Oh, yes, we are living in awful times of enmity against the gospel. The, the churches are being uh, persecuted, the believers persecuted, and churches are closed or burnt, and even in our, in our own North America. It's a terrible time which we're going through. But Jesus has all power in heaven and on earth. Luke says that Christ was carried up into heaven. But Mark adds that he sat on the right hand of God. And that is the position of glory and honor and also of power. The expression sitting at the right hand of God is, of course, a figurative one. God has no bodily parts that he can sit beside and, and, and on the chair, this is all symbolic. But the expression points to a, a reality nonetheless. It refers to the actual bestowal of royal dignity and power on the person of Jesus Christ. And again, we should realize that this is the human nature of Christ that is so honored. Because he was already God from eternity. But now there are new powers and honors bestowed on him as his reward on his labors. Upon his entering heaven congregation, he was given all that power. And, and not only to be used in heaven, but also through his servants 
his apostles here on earth. As mediator, he rules not only over his church, but also over his enemies. Whether this Putin or Biden or whoever, or, or Trudeau, all the political leaders who may think that they have so much power and wisdom, it's, they are all just human beings. Well, Christ has all the power and the wisdom. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Now, these enemies are strong. And they make life miserable for his people. But Christ has conquered these enemies and he is beyond their reach. But you say, what about his people? They are not beyond, their, not beyond their reach, but his poor disciples, they are protected. Yes, they are within the reach of those enemies, and they can inflict very much suffering upon them, but Christ will protect them. He will save them. Even when they die, and they must die, even though it may be a natural death or one inflicted on by, by the enemy, but even death being the last enemy is subject to him. And that is a tremendous comfort for us, or should be, for all who believe in the Lord. The truth of the ascension of Jesus Christ should inspire us and fill us with hope and with courage. We have, after all, a living Savior in heaven, one who can hear and answer prayer. But not only that, he can also deliver us from all our troubles, physical troubles, but also soul troubles. And I think the latter are the more important. The sin problems, the guilt issues. But it is also true to say that we have to do with both visible and physical needs and spiritual. And we can also say they are both visible and invisible enemies that confront us. But Christ can handle them both. He has only to speak one word and the enemy flees. He's able to, to, to still the, the fiercest storms that rage in the soul with his saying, peace, be still. Remember that story of the storm on, on the lake? T tremendous storm. The disciples thought they were going to perish, go down. But all Jesus had to do was say, peace, peace. And everything went down. The wind died down. The gulf, the, the, the waves became level. He has all power. And that is also true spiritually. It can really storm in our hearts and souls, in our spirits. So that we too think we go down. But maybe you have experienced it already. There have been moments when Jesus spoke to you also and said, peace, be still. 
and the peace of God descended in your soul, for a time at least. But it is all out of Christ who is at the right hand of the Father that the Spirit takes that power and he shows it unto poor needy sinners whose only hope is Jesus. My question right now is, is that true of us, of you and me? In general, we can say, yes, it is true and always will be for God's people. But do we belong to that people? Do we belong to the church of Christ? Which for the most part is made up of tried and tempted, burdened and sorrowful, harnessed, harassed and exercised souls who through much tribulation must enter the kingdom of God, as Paul says. For such people, the ascension of Christ is and should be a very comforting reality, not just a doctrine. It is that, but it is more than that. It's a living truth, an experienced truth. You know, our faith, if it is true faith, is not, is not a floating fancy, a traditional opinion or a wild delusion, but it is a solid, substantial reality. It is a substance, the apostle to the Hebrews writes in chapter 11. It is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And then the apostle Paul, uh, Peter goes on to say, speaking of Christ, he says, whom, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now you see him not, Yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Living under those blessing hands of our high priest and the protecting arms of our king, that sums up the meaning of the blessings of the ascension of Christ. And it is for all those who know and love the Savior, whose faith is either very strong or very weak, but it is faith in Christ. And then the promise is absolutely true. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Congregation, do you know that Savior, that now risen and ascended Savior? Do you love him? Does your heart go out to him? If not, then of course I cannot say that there is much comfort here for you. For Christ is not blessing those who are not his friends, but his enemies. And those enemies, as long as they continue as such, can only expect ultimate destruction. He must reign till all his enemies have been put under his feet. And that is not only true of 
people in the world. But sad to say, also, there are those in the church. They may even be very orthodox people. They may even say they love the truth, but where there is no bond between them and Christ, if there's no outgoings of the heart to him and voices crying out, be merciful to me, if that is not there, how can I speak words of comfort to you? But there is still comfort for those who realize their predicament. They're being sinners on the way to perdition. There's comfort. Well, I may say that the Lord reaches out to you. He seeks to save sinners also tonight. But then you must submit to him. You must fall down at his feet and sue for peace. And he has promised, he has promised to pardon all those who now, in time, while still in the day of grace, while still in the world, who now repent and confess their sins. He is, for such people, still the Savior, welcoming sinners with open arms. He has blessings also for you under those same hands, pierced hands. They have blessings also for those who seek him, who confess their sins to him. Those pierced hands are extended to you also, sinner, offering salvation through faith in his blood. Blessed are all those who have found that peace in this Savior, who believe in the ascended Lord with all their heart. For you who is precious, for you, he is all-sufficient, the only Savior. When Jesus said to his disciples, let's go to Jerusalem, then the disciples were worried that Jesus might be apprehended and killed. And Thomas, he said to Jesus, well, where art thou going? When the Savior said, I will go to Jerusalem, but ultimately I will go to heaven. And they said, well, where is heaven? What does it mean, Thomas said? Where is the way? You know what Jesus then said? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And that is what the gospel is all about. Christ, the only Savior, but he is the able Savior, the willing Savior the almighty Savior. Blessed are those who have found that peace in this Savior, who believe in Christ with all their heart. For you who is, therefore, preparing a place in the house of his Father, he has promised, I will come again. You know that from John 14, 
In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and when I have done that, I will come and take you to myself. But he is preparing that place. He's getting it ready. Based upon his finished work, he can now say to his father, Father, I will that those whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, the glory which thou hast given to me from the beginning, from the, before the foundation of the world. Yes, so shall we be with him. But how can we be with him? I've said it many times, and other preachers have said it too. Jesus is preparing a place for his people in heaven. But he is also, therefore, preparing that people for that place. And that preparing work of the Holy Spirit involves us with the conviction of sin, showing the impossibility of saving ourselves, but then crying out to Jesus to save us from all our sins. Amen.